When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. Welcome to New Books and Film, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. My name is Dan Moran. I am thrilled to be here today with Ethan Warren, author of The Cinema of Paul Thomas Anderson, American Apocrypha, published in 2023 by Columbia University Press. Ethan Warren is a member of the Boston Society of Film Critics. He holds an MFA in creative writing from the University of North Carolina, Wilmington, and is the writer and director of the 2016 film West of Her. I am a great admirer of Paul Thomas Anderson, and I'm also a great admirer of Ethan Warren's book about him. So I'm looking forward to this. Welcome, Ethan. Thank you so much for having me. This is great. So Paul Thomas Anderson, or PTA as people call him, but I really can't do that. It's like when people say Bobby De Niro, like these insiders. So Paul Thomas Anderson, you know, he made his first feature-length film, Hard Eight, in 1996. That gets followed a year later by Boogie Nights, which made him a, you know, a big, big sensation for many, many reasons. He's made seven films since then, most recently Licorice Pizza in 2021. He's unavoidable as a director. And people who really like film really like the films of Paul Thomas Anderson. Why do you? Why do I? Uh, well, that's a lot easier than having to answer why people do, which is what I, I thought this might be leading towards. Um, so conveniently, why why do I personally like him? Um, you never know what you're going to get with a new PTA movie. And it's always going to be really unique and special and unlike anything anybody else is doing. It's, it's, it's sort of hard to, to say anything, you know, to identify a more uniting thread than that when you've got movies as diverse as Boogie Nights, There Will Be Blood, and Phantom Thread. It's just the the uh, recurring quality is just their humanism and their love for their characters and their interesting use of music and their often long, fascinating camera work, you know, long languid takes. Uh, he has these stylistic hallmarks that we love, but at the end of the day, what it just comes down to is, you know, you're going to see something that is not like anything anybody else is doing these days. There's nothing like buying a ticket for a new Paul Thomas Anderson movie and not really not knowing what to, what you're going to get. Yeah. I mean, even if you've seen the trailer, just having no idea what you're actually, you know, who, who saw the trailer for Phantom Thread and, and you know, could have predicted where that movie ends up in a <laughs> yeah, newspaper-lined bathroom. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Well, you mentioned in your introduction that you remember seeing Punch Drunk Love and saying, you know, what does this Paul Thomas Anderson guy think he's doing? And that kind of that that never left you, I guess. Yeah. You know, I, I went and saw Punch Drunk Love. I was about 16 years old. And that movie, I found it just so formally alienating and alarming that I walked out, uh, really sort of enraged at this guy and thinking like, what are you trying to pull you artsy fartsy weirdo? Um, I, you know, my friend and I, we wanted to give him a call and, and yell at him for wasting our time and wasting our parents' money. Um, and, and 
in time, I, that, that intensity of emotion there has never really changed for me. It's just that the, the, it's, it's gone from a passionate hatred to a really passionate love and fascination for that film. Uh, although it took me a while to come back to that one, you know, after I, I fell in love more thoroughly with his work with there will be blood. And then I caught up with Magnolia and boogie nights and heart eight saw the master still it took me until then to come back around and and give punch drunk love another try um but it's it's as i say in the introduction it is the beginning of this this fascination for me this this investigation what the hell does this guy think he's doing and i am still trying to figure it out yeah i remember as a kid it's so funny i remember as a kid seeing 2001 for the first time and you get to the end of 2001 and you can either be repelled by that or you can be kind of scared by it or kind of thinking like what in the world is going on but it doesn't leave you if you love movies totally yeah that's that's an undeniable object yeah yeah yeah. so let's let's i thought it'd be fun in the beginning before we get into your book just to talk about the movies themselves right and like so i figure i'm just gonna throw some titles at you and this is you know this is ethan warren's take on this film today because of course your relationship with these movies is really complicated right so i'll say a title and you say you know here's here's why i think this is an interesting movie yeah i mean spoiler alert my answer for all of them is just going to be it's a great movie but we can get more specific than that let's talk about what makes them great so let, let's start with Nights. what makes boogie nights a great movie what makes Boogie Nights a great movie? Um, that is a three-hour hyper-adrenalized epic made by a kid. Right. How old was he when he made 26, that movie? 26, I think he was 26. 26. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. and just the, the sheer audacity of that movie to exist. And this is the compromised form. He wanted it to be, I think he wanted it to be even longer, three hours long and have a disco intermission. I mean- the, the yeah. versions of this thing that could have existed if his, his unchecked ego were even less restrained. Um, what makes this movie special is the same thing that makes a lot of his movies special is just the love of the characters, I think. Um, it is hyper-stylized. It is, you know, as has been well noted over the years, it's riffing on Goodfellas, so it's incredibly fun to watch and hyperactive, and it's got what he himself has described as cocaine energy. It's a movie made uh, by and for and about people doing cocaine. Um, but at the end of the day, it is such a love story, and and uh, or a love a story of a director's love for his characters, and no matter how dark and awful things get and they do get quite awful and dark they are it's 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 always heading towards this redemptive ending that he seems unable not to give his characters uh in some form or other give or take there will be blood yeah it's funny because i think i think it was john gardner who said if you're going to write a novel you cannot condescend to your characters you still have to love them all in some way and it's kind of funny that 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 a three-hour epic about the porn industry You'd think it would it would be very easy for a different director to mock the whole thing, but it doesn't. That's right. Yeah. Well, and, and it's it's sort of it's a movie about porn, but it's also just a movie about stardom. And, star is born, right? Yeah. It's it's the, it, exactly it's a star is born, but with more nudity. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> that should have been its tagline: a star is born, but with more nudity. Basically, I mean, that might have put more more butts in seats. So that puts him on the map and then there will be blood, it, you know, ramps everything up. And that's kind of the movie that a lot of people are introduced to PTA with. Like that's, you know, so what is it about there will be blood that you find special? Well, that is the movie that made me fall in love with him. And me I wasn't, too. I wasn't super excited for that movie because it's, you know, I was in college and 
not that curious about sort of uh, a, a three-hour prestige epic set in the frontier. Um, but I, I had this complicated relationship with the director, and so I was like, okay, let's go see what this is all about. And I just was in love instantly. It's a movie that is so, so strange. Uh, it is so intense and brutal, but it is so funny at the same time, often simultaneously. Um, it has that nerve jangling score that immediately announces it as any, you know, unlike anything you've ever heard before. Um, it is sort of a remake of 2001, although I think every movie is a remake of 2001. There's a lot of 2001 parallels in this movie that I think are really fascinating. Um, that I do think, you know, that's very esoteric. I'm not sure that, you know, explains what helped the movie break out, except that it is just this incredibly unusual cocktail, uh, that yeah, is, and, and at the center of it all is this towering totemic performance by Daniel Day Lewis and the less often heralded, but still incredibly special work by, uh, Paul Dano against him. Um, it's it's spy versus spy. That's the the comparison he has used in the past, and I I love that. It's it is a biblical spy versus spy that is incredibly dark and incredibly funny. And what's Absolutely. not to love about that? Yeah, what's not to love about that? Right? Because when the first time, the very first time you hear him scream, "I drink your milkshake," you you almost don't know how to react. You're like, well, "That's a great line." Do I do I yeah. laugh to release my nervousness? Or I know I wish I remembered how that all hit me at first. All I remember is just sort of sinking into it so quickly, just sort of going in with my arms crossed and then just immediately being like, well, this is one of my favorite movies and just sinking into it and not looking back. Yeah, that's great when that happens. Um, yeah. Okay, last one before we get into your book. Let's talk about Phantom Thread. Let's do another Daniel Day-Lewis one. What do you like about that? Um, boy, <laughs> uh, I have a quote in the book. That I don't remember who it's from, but that that movie is like a grenade being thrown into uh, – British film culture. Um, it's not quite as extreme as that. And there are movies that probably fit that description better. <laughs> um, but I do, I just, I love the, the sheer sort of iconoclasticism of it, if that's a word, um, to, to take, you know, your Hitchcock, uh, homage and take your, um, London period piece and use it to tell this story about how you are a bad husband. I think that's, that's a movie that is incredibly um, telling on itself a little bit. It's, it's PTA telling on himself and, and apologizing to everybody who has tried to have a relationship with him as he, you know, pursues his career um, up to, and especially his loving partner, Maya Rudolph. Um, Again, these are these are more, you know, sort of trivia and esoterica that don't necessarily account for what drew people to these these movies. But um, I do think it it shines through that incredibly personal um, bent that he brings to Reynolds Woodcock, the incredible specificity of that. It's it's a, a movie by an artist about an artist about what it takes to make art um, in a way that is really compelling, and it's. Again, music, music is such a through line in what makes all three of the movies that we're talking about right now um, so effective and all of his movies so effective. Again, this is a Johnny Greenwood and Daniel Day-Lewis collaboration, um, which is just a winning combo for PTA. 
Um, but Johnny Greenwood, the, the, uh, guitarist, I think, right. For Radiohead, yeah. Yeah. um, mm-hmm. has scored every PTA movie going back to there will be blood and probably Phantom Pettis' masterpiece. I mean, it's, I, I don't, I don't have the facility with, uh, classical music terminology to describe what it's riffing on, but it is sort of neoclassical and swooning and, and melodramatic and bombastic and it is so bombastic that at times the music seems to be kind of laughing behind the audience's back with PTA, I feel almost, um, which I kind of love. There's this sort of, you know, (laughs) when, you know, spoilers for Phantom Thread, it winds up with the revelation that (laughs) the, the central couple is going to, uh, engage in a shall i spoil the ending of this movie yeah no we, we, if you're yeah. listening to this podcast we assume you've seen all the movies so go ahead yeah so it, it ends with specifically it's it's alma the vicky creeps character describing all of this to the doctor uh that she has been telling this whole story to sitting by the fire and as she describes we are we have this arrangement now where i am going to every so often dose him with a non-lethal dose of poison uh, to regain his affections in the most violently disgusting way possible. It is all underscored by this absolutely outrageously bombastic Johnny Greenwood score with thundering timpanies. And what you're then cutting to is them in a bathroom lined with paper newspaper because he's about to make such a mess of it. It's just such a delightful sort of, you don't know how to take it. That movie yeah. is, they're laughing. is, yeah, they're, they're laughing like, about it at the end. Yeah. Yeah. They love, they love it. Um, <laughs> it's, it's just the, that, that confounding mash of tones, yeah. uh, which again is, is a common theme in, in there will be blood and what that makes that one so effective. Um, and I think does come down probably a little bit to the Daniel day Lewis, um, collaboration. I think those guys bring out a lot of interesting stuff in each other. Yeah, which is which was what just I love how you said it's a confounding mass of to- mix of tones, right? Because they yeah. truly do have a toxic relationship at the end, it literally, and literally. Uh, <laughs> and of course, there was that news we all got that Daniel Day Lewis, fan of Fred, comes out and he says, "All right, I'm done. I'm retiring." And I'm thinking, like, no, make ten more movies with him, you know. So it's you know, I guess we can't have it all. But let's talk. In, let's talk about your book now. Let's move into your book. So your book begins with two epigraphs. And I, and I want to get your, I want our listeners to get a sense of what your book is about and your book's ideas by talking about them. So I want to get your, your, your thoughts on each epigraph in turn. So the first one is by Upton Sinclair, the American author who wrote the novel Oil, uh, which many listeners will know was the source material for There Will Be Blood. Not exactly the adaptation, but kind of the starting point for PTA, right? So I want to read your epigraph, the epigraph and get your comment on it, okay? Here's what it is. He says, quote, This is a picture of civilization in Southern California as the writer has observed it. The picture is the truth and the great mass of detail actually exists, but the cards have been shuffled. What do you make of that? Well, that is the opening to oil. Um, It is essentially the disclaimer. And as I was sort of the ideas for this book were all starting to sort of coalesce for me. um, I, picked up oil for the first time. Uh, and it's, that's a, it's a fascinating book, uh, that is actually incredibly faithful. The movie is an incredibly faithful adaptation of the book up to a point, And then it goes absolutely in the other direction and completely it's, it's up to the point of the Derek fire. Um, it's almost identical. 
and then just just trivia if you haven't if you're not familiar with oil um and then in the book it takes the track of well now there's been this massive accident at our workspace and so we need to strike and unionize and it all becomes incredibly sociological or uh, rather socialist bent pta goes in the direction of now it's about a deafened boy and now that we've got a he's bringing in the mysterious half brother and all of that goes completely in another direction um but when i picked up oil for the first time and i read that disclaimer i thought well that gets exactly at what um my theory is on what anderson is doing his movies are i mean what does it say <laughs> His movies are a picture of civilization in Southern <laughs> California, as the, in this case, the filmmaker has observed it. The picture is the truth. The great massive detail actually exists, but the cards have been shuffled. That is, that is what Anderson has done again and again throughout his uh, career and most sort of, uh, I don't know, most effectively and in the strongest possible terms uh, with licorice pizza. That is a movie that is very much about Southern California as the writer has observed observed it, it, has he observed it. And it's, you know, I had this epigraph in the years before we knew what licorice pizza even was. And then all of a sudden it comes down the pike and it completely solidifies everything I've been trying to say. Um, That's what I find so fascinating about Anderson is he is like Sinclair, like so many great artists taking a look at the world around him saying, okay, I'm using these details and let's shuffle them up and see what happens. Yeah. And I'll also leave these ones out because of course, you know, you watch Licorice Pizza and it's, it's very, it's very, it's like Paul PTA's nostalgia reel. You know, what, what he leaves out is as interesting as what he puts in. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, unless you believe Richard, unless you believe Richard Brody's theory, which is that, uh, it's not a nostalgic movie because it makes the world look too, makes the past look too grimy to be anything anybody would want any part of. <laughs> Let's do your second epigraph. That's by Anderson himself. So this is a quotation by him. So I'll read this and get your comments. He said, quote, I don't get a sense of American pride. I just get a sense that everyone is here battling the same thing, that around the world, everybody's after the same thing, just some minor piece of happiness each day. So that one is, I I just thought it was an interesting, um, it creates an interesting tension with the first epigraph because what um, I find, I I find a lot of interesting tensions and and sort of paradoxes in Anderson's work that you have to kind of try and reconcile. And one is that he is an intensely regional artist for the most part. Um, You know, he has gone to London for Phantom Thread and for one brief portion of the master. But aside from that, he is really pretty, hyper-focused on uh, America and specifically Southern California. So to have him then go out there and say, I don't have a sense of myself as an American artist. I am more a an observer of the world, I think is a really interesting tension. Um, and at the same time, points at some arguments I'll make about him later in the book that he is maybe a little prone to generalization. And to generalize that, you know, there's, (laughs) he has a tendency, at least he did, uh, as a, as a younger filmmaker. And I think still does to some extent, he has a tendency to, uh, create a world, a a fictional world that really aligns with the inside of his own head, uh, more than necessarily any, um, demographic specificity to the world as it is. Um, 
And you see a lot of that in Magnolia. That's a movie that he said, this is the definitional San Fernando Valley movie. It's the definitional San Fernando Valley movie from behind his own eyes. He has a tendency to flatten the world into alignment with his own perspective. And so I think that's that's an interesting thing that he said in an interview with Lars von Trier, um, as it happens. Yeah. Uh, everybody, everybody around the world is after the same thing, just some minor piece of happiness each day. It's absolutely true. That's a great way of sort of um, distilling the human condition, but it also is just a very convenient distillation of a very complicated world. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So you you split his career into three rough phases, right? You have the terms, you call it the thesis phase, the antithesis phase, and the synthesis phase. And it works out perfectly because there's nine films. So that's, you know, that, that was the stars aligned for you there. So let's, I'd like to get your take on each phase and what the three films in that phase have in common, all right? So in the phase one, we get Heart Eight, Boogie Nights and Magnolia. So how do those three form form a little unit? Uh, so one, one little interesting detail about this book, I wrote the entire book before Licorice Pizza came out and then had to rewrite it all. So initially this was eight movies that I was breaking into three categories and it was somewhat inconvenient. And then Licorice Pizza came along and brought everything into harmony. It was a very convenient movie for me that way. Um, so what, Links, Hard Eight, Boogie Nights, and Magnolia. Those are movies that are linked by a couple of things. Um, I think the most obvious ones are uh, what I see as a, as a style of very declarative screenwriting. Um, these are movies about characters who say what they mean and mean what they say and say a lot about it all the time. And in two movies, often because of the laxative properties of cocaine, um, the verbal laxative that is. Um, they're, they're movies about people. I mean, even, even, um, hard eight, it's, it's a David Mamet movie, but it's not really a twists and turns movie. There's one major reveal, but aside from that there, you know, there's one big secret, but aside from that, it's mostly people just telling each other how they feel about things. Um, so they're, uh, they're movies of, uh, I think it's, it's the writer, George Tolls, who also wrote a, a great book on Anderson. Um, I believe he used the term outward grapple. That's what these are movies about the outward grapple with, uh, feelings, a whole lot of great big feelings. <laughs> um, particularly when it comes to Magnolia, uh, a movie that is like a semi truck of feelings hitting you. Um, and they are movies that are, are incredibly, uh, indebted to their influences and they wear their influences on their sleeve in a great big way. Um, particularly boogie nights with, um, Goodfellas, uh, of which it is at times almost an homage. Um, and in some cases he's directly lifting shots. Yeah. You talk um, about the restaurant, the great, the famous restaurant shot from Goodfellas mm-hmm. and how we see that in Boogie Nights, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so those are, those are the two, I think biggest, uh, defining hallmarks of, of this, this series of this, what I see as this little mini cycle in the nine film cycle. Okay. And you talk about Mamet earlier because apparently one of the stories about him is he went to NYU and like handed in a page of Mamet's screenplay for Hoffa and got a bad grade in it or something. Or, you know, there's a lot of these, speaking of American Apocrypha, there's a lot of these apocryphal stories about him in, 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 at NYU and stuff. But, you know, it's funny that you said heartache because it does feel like a David Mamet film where, where people in a diner sit and talk at each other. That's like American Buffalo or something. Absolutely. Yeah. No. And, and House of Games feels like a huge touch yeah. point for that movie too. Yeah. Just the sort of gambling backdrop. 
Uh, but it's not it's 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 not a movie with as many deceptions and twists and turns as as House of right. Games, and and it's not a it's not a movie about con men necessarily. It's just a movie about a, a, a gentleman Sydney. gambler, for lack <laughs> yeah. of a better term. It's, right. it's just a, an old old fashioned man. Yeah, trying to do the right thing. <laughs> yeah, a, a hard ass, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> so let's go on to the three antithesis films. Next, we get Punch Drunk Love, There Will Be Blood, and The Master. So yes. same question. What do those three have in common? So now we shift into a mode of stories about characters who are incredibly repressed. So if those three movies are extremely expressive, these movies are very repressive. Um, each, of, each of these movies is about a character who is in some way incapable of communicating with the world around him. Oh, well, and there's also, you know, not to mention the fact that we've shifted from ensembles now much more towards single protagonists uh, to another thing that sets these two cycles apart um, or the mini cycles in the larger cycle. Um, so we've now, uh, we also, the the nerve jangling scores now become uh, a significant element. Um, so those those are really the two things that that yeah. jump to mind as setting these two, these two apart is the the repressed characters and the intense nerve jangling scores and the the lack lack of um, as overt I think stylistic touch points um, the the stylistic influences are still very much there and he's making homages that are in some cases you know as um, overt as the ones in Boogie Nights. But it's a little bit less like these are movies made of influences and more movies that are making use of their influences, I think. Yeah, I love what you said about – this comes up in your book too about these these single characters who are repressed, right? Because Barry Egan, like he gets to the point where he has to trash the bathroom and then, um, you know, uh, in uh, There Will Be Blood, there's the part, I've abandoned my child and he has to say it over and over and that starts to come out. And then, of course, uh, Lancaster Dodd when they're doing all this stuff, with, you know, and Joaquin Phoenix as well, right? I mean, like when yeah. Freddie's got to like start get, going through the process for the cause to be cleared or whatever. Yeah, it's Absolutely, funny that they're all – they're also repressed, yeah. Right, and and then there's the fact that Barry Egan is a plunger salesman. So some <laughs> right. people have seen that as a little bit of a Freudian gag. The yeah. uh, you know he, he's working to relieve the the uh, the blockages. He's emotionally stopped up. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. So let's go up to date now. We get the synthesis films, right? We get his last three. We get Inherent Vice, Phantom Thread, and Licorice Pizza. So what comes? What seems to come together in this new phase? Well, these ones, it's it's a little bit. You know, the whole thing with thesis, antithesis, synthesis is that the first two phases are so much in opposition. And then the third is a more sort of a, a space of more harmonious, um, you know, hanging out for lack of a, a more, uh, exp, you know, that's exactly lack, what they're lack like. of a better term. <laughs> these are these are three hangout movies a little bit. Um these are movies that seem relatively unconcerned with the stakes of their own existences. Whereas the first three movies, I, I believe are a guy coming out there and saying as loudly and proudly as possible, this is what a Paul Thomas Anderson movie is. And then after three movies, he all of a sudden decides, wait, no, I'm going to shift it. No, now this is what a Paul Thomas Anderson movie is. And he makes three movies in that distinct mode. And then I think what he is able to break through to a little bit is being relatively unconcerned with what it means to make a Paul Thomas Anderson movie, the pressures of that expectation. So we get these three very interesting movies that each I see as a sort of revision a little bit of one of the three movies that came before. 
So it's like he's running backwards through the middle three movies, the antithesis movies, and letting each movie relax in some way. So we have, uh, we start with Inherent Vice, which is the mirror image of uh, his prior movie, The Master. Whereas before we had uh, Joaquin Phoenix playing a incredibly tense, tight character. Now we have Joaquin Phoenix playing a relaxed, loose character. You then move on to Phantom Thread, which is the mirror image in this alignment of There Will Be Blood, another Daniel Day-Lewis movie. Again, there he played this you know, horribly brutal character. Now he's playing this gentle and rather effete, effete character. I've never really seen that. I've never really heard that word pronounced, just seen it written down. Um, and then you have Licorice Pizza, which is just as much a uh, two-character sort of dance as Punch Drunk Love is. And it's a celebration and a sort of weird anthropological look at the San Fernando Valley, much like Punch Drunk Love. But whereas, again, that movie was so fiercely, fiercely repressed and locked up inside one character's head. Now it is this explosive, expansive vision of the valley. So that's that's my theory of, of an interesting way to read these three movies. It's it's by no means any kind of um, interpretive key to anything. I just think it's a it's a fun way of organizing and looking at them and and sort of studying the way yeah. he's progressed. Yeah, it certainly is, and I love what you just said about being a hangout movie. That's what, you know because the you know the first ones are announce and the announcing of one's talent, and then you get to okay, now I'm moving into my new phase, and then like you know if someone said to you what's the plot of Licorice Pizza, you would say well you kind of like hang out for two hours with these people and they go on adventures and they they run they run away from each other and then they run towards each other. Yeah, it's it's a no plot all story movie. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And inherent vice, the plot is is you can't get through it with the you know a fine tooth comb. I mean, I guess Absolutely. some of the people have tried, but so let's talk about you said you're hanging out. You mentioned the valley again, right? So after you get through that part in the book, your book does not go chronologically. You kind of like go through like different different aspects of his career, which is really interesting. And let's look at a few of the themes you trace. So. Uh, I think you, you said this before, the nine films, I think six take place in the Valley and you call it the Andersonian Valley, which is, I thought was another great title for your book. So <laughs> what, you know, what kind of place is the Andersonian Valley? What, what kind of things happen in the Andersonian Valley? The Andersonian Valley is a place of uh, extremely heightened emotion and a place of that that feels almost borderline magical and at times overtly magical to the extent that uh, at the peak of the character's emotions, frogs can fall from the sky while they become sort of uh, mentally linked uh, across great swaths of space to join in a sing-along. Um, that Magnolia is a movie that breaches the wall of magic realism and drags the rest of the Andersonian Valley in along with it, uh, in my opinion. I think there are, uh, Punch Drunk Love is a movie that is is borderline magic realist as well, mm -hmm. I think. Uh, it, it is an eerily depopulated valley in this case, but again, feels almost magically so, and and um, a place of, of such um, A place where where you know the world is silent, and then all of a sudden a truck flips over in front of you, or a car does. Right. Um, it's it's a place of of violence and horror, but redemption and love. It is it is the grand stage for for the Andersonian sort of 
Uber story, I think. Um, and, and it's, it, it doesn't call attention to itself as a mythic space, but I think if you, if you look at it from the right angle in the right direction, um, it, it does feel like a magical space. Yeah, you compare it to Faulkner in Yakupatanapa County, and like you know this hey, kind of like. Thank you for pronouncing yeah. it because I wasn't going to try. <laughs> so, but my chat- my apocryphal county is what yeah. Faulkner called it. Yeah, and yeah. That's, this is this is his apocryphal valley. Yeah, with all the details correct according to him, and the card shuffled right. I mean, exactly. That's, that's yeah, exactly what it is. Yeah. So moving on from the valley, you have a chapter on his influences, and I love all the quotations you found from him in past interviews where he started getting annoyed because people compare him to Robert Altman. Now, of course, he did have this great relationship with Robert Altman. He was the he he was brought in to finish in case Altman died for the Prairie Home Companion. He he makes no bones about that. But um, you quote how people kept saying Magnolia was like shortcuts, and they kept saying Magnolia is like shortcuts, and I love how he eventually just says, well, I guess I ripped it all off. (laughs) I guess I ripped the whole thing off. But then he also says a great line. He says, listen, every song we hear now is a Beatles song. Every song we hear now is a Beatles song. We're just building on the Beatles template, right? So all of his caveats aside, right? You know, you can't get out of, you can't start from scratch and making films. Who do you think he likes? Who are some of his influences? Well, his influences, um, he is is quite vocal and loud and proud about who his influences are, and uh, there have been different um, sort of phases in his career when different re- uh, influences were more relevant. So, uh, Boogie Nights and Magnolia very much Scorsese influenced, uh, particularly in their camera work. This sort of very adrenalized again cocaine movies. Um, I think Kubrick is a really interesting reference point. Altman um, is is a, is a reference point that is, I think, both obvious and a little bit um, maybe almost inept. I don't think he's ever made a movie that's actually as shaggy as any Altman movie. His his characters rarely uh, talk over each other, <laughs> and and uh, and I, I think his camera work is is more Kubrickian, more precise. Um, so I think Kubrick is a really interesting reference point, especially in the way that his stories have increasingly become guided by um, elliptical, which is to say dot, dot, dot rhythms, um, events that are are linked. I mean, what is Licorice Pizza or The Master, but movies that are, are linked by the dot, 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 a narrative ellipsis, um, which I think he takes very much from uh, the Kubrick of it all. Um, but I think the most interesting influences to me, uh, are two guys, Jonathan Demi and Robert Downey senior. And they are his two, two guys who started out as influences and became friends and mentors. Um, two guys who have, who have now passed and the last two movies were dedicated to each of them, respectively phantom thread to Jonathan Demi and licorice pizza to Robert Downey senior. And these are two guys who seem theoretically, incredibly um opposed uh they are jonathan demi is sort of the consummate humanist robert downey senior is is sort of the consummist you know impractical joker tm um no he was he was sort of this this provocateur he made his his most famous movie had a uh a self-imposed x rating they seem like they should not be two guys who make any sense as a paired influence to Anderson, but there was a, there was a, a mutual admiration between all three of those guys that comes down to just, 
Well, what he talks about when he talks about Demi is he talks about um, the way that he makes every character feel like a human being. And when he talks about Downey, he talks about um, the the personal rhythms that he follows that make him happy and he doesn't care if they alienate the audience. And those are two two major things that I think make up the PTA cocktail, the uh, finding your own rhythm that that maybe risks alienating the audience and the consummate humanism. Yeah, it's part. It, it strikes me as it's part audacity. That's the Robert Downey Sr. thing. It's part audacity. Right? I'm going to make a three-hour movie about the porn industry, right? And but it's also his love of people, like Jonathan Demi. So because, he, like, you know, he he like he he loves Dirk Diggler, and he loves even like you know T.J. Mackey and Magnolia. And if you ask any character in Magnolia who's the movie about, you know, they would say, "Oh, it's about me." <laughs> oh, totally. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's kind of the, what a cool combination to like uh, be that audacious. And I don't care what my rhythms are, whether you like them or not. But I'm going to tell you this really human story. That's a that's really interesting. Right? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Great. So let's um, I want to move on a little bit ahead and talk about. I want to move up to inherent vice because I read a rumor uh, last week preparing for this interview that there's a rumor that PTA is going to do another Pynchon novel. He's going to do Vineland. And uh, you, who knows if it's true or not, but they're looking at casting calls and who he's looking for, you know, a young woman who could do martial arts. Apparently it reminded me of the casting call scene in licorice pizza, but um, inherent vice was a big score for him, right? You're going to film Thomas Pynchon. He might have a cameo in the film. PTA won't say whether that's true or not. You know, Thomas Pynchon has his career. He's famous for that. Why do you think that Pynchon and Tom and PTA are so well paired? You talk about a cocktail, right? Those two are like gin and tonic. Why do you think that is? Well, they are two artists who think the world is very funny. I know that much. Um, And they are two artists who think the world is very dark. And they, I guess, (laughs) pardon me for just blanking as I zone out thinking about what a a great writer Thomas Pinchon is, basically. Um, I think one thing that that makes them well paired is Anderson's interest in um, controlling the viewer's perspective, right. which is also something that Pinchon is very interested in doing. Pinchon does it through the obfuscation of language. Anderson does it through the obfuscation of the sort of camera's eye. It's something I think he does a lot in Inherent Vice. Mm-hmm. Um and I think it represents a, I talk about it plenty in the book. I, I can go into it here, but we have a lot to talk about. Um, they both have an interest in, in showing how wacky and zany the world can be uh, through the, through the lens of, of um, making the world obfuscated right. for lack of a less, uh, less highfalutin term. Um the world is weird. The world is scary. And let's use the tools of our, our chosen artistic mediums uh, to sort of demonstrate that by constraining the audience's awareness of what is going on around them at all times. Yeah. Because when, when, of course, when inherent vice was when, when inherent vice was first promoted, I like many other people thought, well, you can't film Thomas Pynchon. You can't do it. You can't you can't have a film viewer go into that space that Pynchon puts you in because we all know you know we've read Gravity's Rainbow and V and all these other books. And then when I saw inherent vice, someone said, "What was it like?" I said, "It was like reading the book. Like it's it's it, it's the same kind of disorienting experience 
where you 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 mentally and emotionally end up doing many of the same same things you do as you turn the pages. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, and it's he he's talked about the idea that that he wanted the movie to be overstuffed the way that every page of that book feels overstuffed with with ideas and names and images. He he wanted to do the same thing on screen and and yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And again, to to your point about being audacious. I mean, what is more audacious than saying I'm going to make a Thomas Pynchon movie? I, yeah, absolutely. And who else could? And who could, who could have done it? Yeah. Right. Who else could? So let's move from from adapting and screenwriting to directing. So my, my favorite chapter in the book was was I really loved the, all the discussion of what you call the alienation effects and about how that works. Because when I read that chapter, I'm like, right. I'm like, this is this is how these movies work. Like he, you know, Ethan Moore, he's articulating you know, at least my experience of seeing these. So so I thought those were great. So. Let's talk about that. What are these alienation effects and and how does he use them? So alienation effects tends to refer, or at least as I am using it in this context, uh, refers to um, any filmmaking, typically theatrical, really. It's it's a theatrical term um, first and foremost, but can also be used, I think, as a filmmaker. Any effect that makes the audience aware of the fact that they are watching something that has been constructed that they are not um, anything that that alienates you from the typically passive experience of sinking into a story. One, one would think that the ideal way to consume a story is to just sink into the fictional world and believe that it is real. What an alienation effect presupposes is that um, it's actually more interesting to be periodically made aware of your the falseness of what you are seeing and that that can actually draw you more uh, into the story by engaging you in a more intellectually sort of exciting way. So how does he use them? Um, I then I see um, a lot of use and abuse of uh, what, what are called the low level features of film. And that is a term that came from a paper by a researcher named, I believe her name is Caitlin Brunick and her colleagues at all. Um, they identified certain, what they called low level features of film, such as the amount of light that is in a frame, the amount of movement that is in a frame, uh, the amount of color saturation that is in a frame, these things that impact how we receive the story on an unconscious level. What Anderson does is run rampant over these sort of typically um, typically pretty traditionally followed rules of how movies are composed. Uh, so if you look at uh, Punch Drunk Love, again, the movie that alienated me so much as a teenager, <laughs> uh, he is really messing a lot with the amount of light in the frame. He has these portions of the frame film filled with extreme over brightness and portions are filled with extreme shadow. It's, it's often very disorienting because it is, it is not following what we are trained to see as, you know, the right amount of light in a frame. Um, he does the same thing with the, with the intense sound design, although that's not a, not a visual element. So you can't, it doesn't fall under the low level ideas thing. Um, and then in punch drunk love, not in punch drunk love, uh, in inherent vice rather, uh, what he's doing is he's messing with um, the shot length and the shot sequencing, uh, which again, these these 
the rhythm of shot length and shot sequence, which is you know how shots are in relation to each other, there is an accepted rhythm that has fallen into tradition over you know the past hundred years of of film history. And what he does is he completely shuffles the deck of long and short shots. So what typically looks like a sort of rise and fall, nice waveform of of how shots are arranged, he has these really jagged peaks and valleys in that movie. And that interferes with how we receive the story. Um, it's, it's, it's hard to get into this stuff without really getting into the weeds. So you might just want to read it out of the book. Um, <laughs> rather than have me try and uh, no, cram talking, all of this. You talk about evocative, brain, yeah. and, evocative and provocative, you know, the, the different ways that, you know, the way he provokes you and the way he evokes, you know, your, your expectations maybe about what you're about to see versus what you really get. Right. Yeah. And so I say in some phases of his career, there's the alienation is more provocative in some phases, the alienation is more evocative. Right. right. And so, um, if you look at something like Boogie Nights, there's a lot of very provocative, I think, alienation in that movie where he is using, in that case, techniques that are almost French New Wavy. The French New Wave loved alienation effects. They loved to call attention to the fact that you were watching a movie. Yeah. Um, he borrows a lot from them, but it feels in a way that almost pulls you out of the movie. It, it provokes you rather than drawing you deeper and evoking something in you. Uh, as as the uh, alienation effects, I think, in the later movies do more effectively. Yeah, and of course, Boogie Nights is a movie about movies, so you're kind, you're constantly it, reminded, it yeah, <laughs> right. And you know, you talk about how he loved this scene and shoot the piano player, where they say, "Oh, I hope my, if I'm lying, my 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 mother died." And all of a sudden, it just cuts to this old woman dying, and that's like um, when John C. Riley's, you know, uh, the, the 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 pants catch on fire at the matches go off in his pocket. Yep. That you're supposed to, you're not supposed to remind the audience that they're watching a film. That's supposed to be high praise. I for, you know, people say, I actually forgot I was reading a novel. I forgot I, I was watching a film. But your whole point yeah. is no. Anderson's, he's constantly reminding you you are, but he still makes it emotional and he still makes it work. Exactly. Yeah. Well, on, on the idea that by making you lean forward in your seat and making you say, yeah. why is, why is he doing these things? Why do I feel the way I feel that is drawing you into the movie much more so than if you are just lying back, letting it wash right. over you. Right. If the, if the fourth wall is never broken, you can get a little soft, you get a little complacent, totally. but then you, you talk about how in the master that the, that the way those things work in the master is they kind of draw you, you say you get drawn onto Freddie's wavelength. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's how they work. And if you think about it, I guess you think that's true for a lot of them. Like it's kind of true for Barry Egan, right? Like don't those effects get you into Barry's headspace, so to speak? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, if, if the movie is uncomfortable to watch, it is because it is about a character who is uncomfortable to exist. Yeah. And you grow to be on his side though, right? Like I love, like, I love the scene when he's in Hawaii and he's, he's calling his sister and he says, Oh, can I have Lena's phone number? And she says, why Barry? He's like, give me the phone number. I'll kill you. Give me because you want that phone number too. Right. <laughs> so that's a, that's, I just, that was a great way for you to articulate something very mysterious that happens when we watch a film. So you say now we'll get even bigger. So we did the Anderson Valley and we did, you know, the history of film. Let's do, let's do the 20th century. Let's, let's, you know, swing for the fences here. You say in your book that Anderson sees the 20th century as a toolbox and a playset. So how so? <laughs> uh, well, he has not made a movie set in the present day since 2002, 
with Punch Drunk Love. And so that was, you know, he has he has only ever made three movies out of nine set in the present day. That's Hard Eight, Magnolia, and Punch Drunk Love. He is more interested in the 20th century, as a lot of his peers are. He's he's got um, a lot of a lot of the guys he came up with, like Wes Anderson, Quentin Tarantino, similarly interested in, in the past. And so what sets him apart from the other those other two guys is well, I probably shouldn't set myself up for a, a fall here by trying to trying to set that comparison. So I'll just say, isn't it interesting that all three of them make period pieces and then send the other two out the door <laughs> while we talk about what Anderson does? Um, is he he sees the past as, like I say, a set of details that he can rifle through and choose what interests him. And he has compared himself to a shark and to a vampire as he approaches fact, uh, where he, <laughs> he leaves, you, you just drain what you need to out of, out of fact and leave the corpse behind you, I believe is what he said in some interview. Um, and so out of this, what he then does is he builds his, his sort of mythic pasts, pasts that don't have the typical anchors in the sociopolitical world that we might expect of period pieces, but are more sort of exist in their own sphere, um, on their own wavelength. And, and, you know, as I say, it's, it's a toolbox and a playset. It's, it's the, the verifiable fact is the playground for him to run around on and create his, his world of make-believe. And I think there's something that is, is incredibly adventurous about what he is doing with the past because it is so generally unconcerned with um what we expect out of prestige movies and i guess the 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 place that thing just it just evokes for me this guy who is having a really good time doing what he's doing yeah do you think that do you think that by setting things in the like let's talk about licorice pizza do you think that setting that film in the time in which it's set lets him get for lack of a better phrase get away with more with like gary and alana's like relationship because that would be a totally different movie if that was done now right Absolutely. I think that's completely true. I think by looking, by setting some of his stories in the past, he is able to shield himself a little bit in the, the sociopolitical norms of the era that he's, he's setting the story in. Yeah. And Gary and Alana is a great example of that. Yeah. Yeah. Because you watch the film now and you almost like the first time you see licorice pizza, you're like, is that, wait, what? Wait a minute. She's twenty five, and you're kind of, like you start to do math in your head. You don't but know how like, old she is. Yeah, yeah. You don't know. She says twenty eight, then she corrects herself to twenty five. Yeah. But certainly, it's almost like it's 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 in this patina of like storybook land or the Andersonian Valley. Um, so let's talk about that. You know, one thing that runs through your book is that Anderson is sometimes we talked about what he did, and you talk about how he's often criticized for what he doesn't do, and that's something that never occurred to me until I read your book. Um, and I'm talking about like the apolitical you know, nature of his films, right? So you point out that, you know, we get a little bit of politics and there will be blood simply by virtue of its release date. I mean, that was like perfectly timed, you know, no blood for oil, there will be blood. Okay. You quote a lot of writers though, who call him, they almost seem angry at him. Like you quote people, call him politically evasive and they complain in his films, he's changed the ethnic makeup of the Valley. So how do you respond to those kinds of readings? Like, cause you know, Anderson seems to brush them off or throw up his hands. But do you think he's ever accused of like 
you know, not making the movies that other people wanted him to make? Well, I think part of it comes down to just sort of expectation versus product. So you, you sort of, you combine two uh, threads of critique there. And, and one is the socialist critique, uh, which is the idea that he is politically evasive. Um, and one is, is the um, more socio-political critique uh, about the way that he depicts the San Fernando Valley. Um, I think one of those is a little easier to uh, reconcile than the other. I think I think it is really funny to me that there is a prominent socialist website out there that hates Paul Thomas Anderson as much as the World Socialist website does. I I really admire them for year after year showing up to write kind of the same review over and over again, which is Paul Thomas Anderson doesn't care about the real world implications of his stories. I think that is an interesting criticism to level against him. I don't know how much it at the end of the day should have a whole lot of bearing on how you read the movies. Um, and then the issue of, of how he depicts the Valley, I think is, is a little more relevant um, because as I, I alluded to earlier, I think when he was promoting Magnolia, he was saying, I made the mother of all San Fernando Valley movies. That's one of his quotes. But he then made a movie a, about 13 or so white people. And so people said, well, so is what you're saying that the Valley, if, if, if you are doing the definitive portrait of the Valley is, is this a, an accurate demographic makeup of the Valley? And he got very touchy very quickly or very clammed up very quickly about, well, this is, that's what it's like. And with licorice pizza, the same stuff, came up a little bit again because it's it is a movie that shows the valley as as almost entirely populated by white people. And so you can just say, well, yeah, that's the circles these kids run in. But the question is, do you want to go out there and say then this is a again, which he did not he did not go out there and say this is a definitive San Fernando Valley movie, but he at this point has the pressure of expectations that the movies that he if he's making a movie about the valley, it is in some way a statement about the valley. What does it mean that once again, he went out there and made, I mean, uh, the term is deracinated. This is, this is an even more deracinated Valley than in Magnolia. There are no colors of characters of color, rather, uh, of consequence in that movie. And did, you know, would, would it be a better movie if there were more characters of color that, you know, it would be a different movie. It doesn't, you know, that, that doesn't really make sense to ask. I don't think. But what does make sense is to say, well, what are you saying with the way that you paint this portrait? Yeah. So do you think when he made the claim about Magnolia, he was just a younger director, you know, just full of beans and like, I'm going to make, he made this big statement and then all of a sudden he realized he kind of backpedaled and then for licorice pizza, he, you know, he knew not to make a statement like that. I think, I think he is somebody who his relationship with the press has been really interesting because again, those, those first three movies around the time of those first three movies, he just could not stop talking and could not stop putting his foot in his mouth. And since then he has been very cagey with the press, or at least he was for a few years. There seems to have relaxed a little bit now, but he is, he is very careful with, with what he says and how and why. Yeah. Maybe he had a 
conversation with Thomas Pynchon about it. <laughs> Maybe. What, what do they talk about? <laughs> yeah. How'd you like to fly on that wall? Yeah, really? So let's move up to, let's end with the title. So, you know, again, the, the, the title of the book is the cinema of Paul Thomas Anderson. Okay. That's, we all know what's in the book, but um, you have the subtitle, right? It's really interesting. American Apocrypha. We mentioned the word Apocrypha before, but how'd you come up with that? And, you know, I'm sure you had a list that you kept crossing out. What am I going to call this thing? Right. So how'd you settle on American Apocrypha? Well, it, it combined a couple of ideas that I found compelling. Um, I think you're, you're never going to go terribly wrong by making your title American something. I think that is a sturdy construction. A lot of great people have used that. I'm, I'm, I'm joining a great tradition. Um, but what I wanted to talk about was this idea that he is a uniquely American artist who is a uniquely American fabulist to a certain extent. He tells stories about America that play really fast and loose with uh, historical fact, even when purporting to hew to historical fact. He is making uh, apocryphal histories. And so you you say American apocrypha. Yeah. You say in the book that he, he imagines the past rather than recalls it. And that's, that's just exactly what we were talking about with the Valley, right? Like he, you know, he said, this isn't supposed to be a true to life portrait of America or the, you know, the Valley, you know, I, I'm imagining it. It's a, it's an imaginative space. That's not, it's not documentary. Exactly. It's a space that exists inside his own head and inside his own heart. Yeah. So Ethan, it's been great talking to you today. You, you certainly made me go back to a lot of the movies and watch them again and prep for today. And as I was reading your book, it was a lot of fun to revisit those films. The Cinema of Paul Thomas Anderson, American Apocrypha, is available wherever books are sold. You could also get a copy linked from the New Books Network's website. Thank you so much, Ethan. I really enjoyed this. Thank you. Me too. This was great.